If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So at first glance, these verses can seem a little random. They can seem a little confusing. So hopefully we can bring some clarity to that uh, this morning. So the first thing to see here is that they are baptized on behalf of the dead. Verse 29. Baptized on behalf of the dead. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be baptized on behalf of the dead? Well, that is a really good question. And the truth is, I don't know. I don't know. There, uh, nobody really knows for sure. Uh, you can do some research there if you'd like, and you can find all kinds of different uh, opinions on what that means. There's a bunch of possible interpretations. I'll give you just a few brief ones out of many. One option is they talk about believer's baptism. Uh, part of what believer's baptism symbolizes is death, burial, and resurrection, right? In this case, if this is what Paul is referring to, the, the argument is why would believers get baptized symbolizing resurrection if there is no resurrection? That doesn't make sense, right? Another option could be that it is a vicarious baptism of some sort for the resurrection of those who have already died, right? Some have died Maybe they weren't baptized before they died, and so there might have been a practice where people would themselves be baptized on behalf of that person who had died and hadn't been baptized, again, with the hope of their eternal life, the hope of their resurrection. If this is the case, if this is what Paul is referring to, again, the argument is, why would you get baptized for somebody for their resurrection if there is no resurrection? It doesn't make sense, right? Are you seeing the argument here? Okay, another option could be uh, this may have been a pagan practice. Um, it could have been part of a pagan ritual to be baptized on behalf of someone who has died to help them somehow in the afterlife. Again, in this case, if this was the case, the point here would be that even pagans recognize that there is a resurrection, that there is a life to come. So there's many more possibilities here. There's many more variations of those, of what this might mean. So we really don't know for sure. But whatever it was, it seems that the Corinthians would have known what this practice was, right? Whether they were practicing that themselves or whether it was in their community, they would have known what this is, what this means. And so Paul here is not advocating for this baptism on behalf of the dead one way or another. He's not really addressing that. He's not saying it should or shouldn't be practiced. He's simply using this to show that people believe in resurrection, right? It's proven by their actions. If people are being baptized for resurrection, it's showing that there is a belief in resurrection. 
And so if there is no resurrection, why would baptism matter? Why would anyone be baptized? Right? If the dead are not raised at all, he says, why are people baptized on their behalf? If there is no resurrection, then baptism for the dead, whatever that is, doesn't make sense. But look back at verse 20. This is a crucial verse for this chapter, right? Verse 20, but, it, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul earlier here in verse 20 has already made the case for resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore the resulting resurrection of his followers, of those who have faith in Christ. Christ has been raised from the dead. There is resurrection. Paul then goes on to talk about his ministry as evidence of this, or of his belief in resurrection. He speaks here of his life and ministry, uh, starting in verse 30. Uh, Why are we in danger every hour? And so he's basically here saying, making a case, why would I do all the work that I am doing? Why would I do all of this ministry if there is no resurrection? But in fact, uh, he's preaching, his preaching of the gospel is showing that he believes in resurrection. He's convinced of it, right? All of his ministry is there as evidence to his belief in resurrection. Now with that, this time, this place, it would be dangerous to be a Christian, right? It was even more dangerous to be a, an apostle, to be one who is out proclaiming the gospel. There's serious risks involved. You risk forfeiting every comfort of this life. You risk forfeiting even your life itself. So in verse 30, Paul asks us, why are we in danger every hour? Why would I, why would these others with me, why would we subject ourselves to all of this danger if there's no resurrection? I don't have to do this, Paul is implying, right? I don't have to do this. Right? The other apostles don't have to do this. If there's no resurrection, why would we put ourselves out there in this way, in this dangerous position? That wouldn't make sense. That would be foolish. Right? Turn over quickly to 2 Corinthians, just a little bit over to the right. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This obviously is a a letter Paul wrote later to the Corinthians, but Paul here details this a little bit more. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. They wanted to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who does what? Who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So there's great danger, and yet there's a deliverance. There's a deliverance in this life as well as in resurrection unto eternal life. And so this type of 
danger is at times the life of a Christian. We don't experience that a whole lot here, but there are places around the world where they experience this every day, right? Life in danger, great peril. In danger every hour, but always looking to Jesus, setting your hope on him, being convinced of God's power and the resurrection to come. So it's looking towards future, not just today, right? So this is Paul's response to the gospel, or excuse me, to the gospel, to the resurrection, right? To the fact that there's resurrection. This is why he preaches the gospel in dangerous circumstances, right? Look back at verse 14 of chapter 15, First Corinthians 15, verse 14. He written this earlier. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So Paul's preaching ministry would be in vain because his preaching is based on the fact of resurrection. Right? It's the foundation of what he does. It's the foundation of his message. It's the foundation of his ministry. If you remember, Paul had witnessed the resurrected Christ. Right? Look back at verse 8. Verse 8, Paul says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, the resurrected Jesus, appeared also to me. So Paul and others were firsthand witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, and their lives testify to the resurrection of Jesus as well as the resurrection of his followers to come. Now think about the disciples who were with Jesus. Right? At Jesus' arrest, when Jesus was arrested, what did they do? They fled. They abandoned Jesus. That might make sense, right? They didn't want to get arrested, right? So they fled. When Jesus was crucified, what did they do? Most of them hid away. They stayed clear. That makes sense, right? They don't want to be crucified along with him. But after Jesus' resurrection, what did the disciples do? They risked all kinds of danger to proclaim his name. They risked all kinds of danger to proclaim the gospel. This is a different response, isn't it? At first they flee, they leave him, they scatter. Now there's resurrection. Now they're bold. Now they'll take on dangerous situations. They'll risk their very lives in order to proclaim this message of the gospel of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the resurrection for believers to come. This is a different approach. But it doesn't make sense if there is no resurrection. Right? That's Paul's argument here. Why would we all do this, he says, if there is no resurrection? That would not make sense. But they were convinced Jesus had risen from the dead and that there is a coming resurrection for all those who have faith in him. So this is Paul's conviction. And his life testified to it. His life and ministry testified that there is more than this present visible life. So how about you? Do you share this same conviction? Or is it just an idea out there that maybe is true? Do you share this conviction? Does your life testify to it? 
So Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? Why would we subject ourselves to this? Then verse 31, he says, I protest. Okay, this word is a statement, it's a statement of affirmation. He's saying this is true, right? Just as I have pride in you, Corinthians, just as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, what I say next is absolutely true. What does he say? I die every day. So in saying this, that he dies every day, Paul is saying that he subjects himself to death every day. This is part of his life. He takes up his cross daily to follow Jesus. He dies to his fleshly desires. He risks physical harm to himself. He is dying to himself every day for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. Why? Paul, why die to yourself every day? Why take up your cross and follow Jesus? Because there's resurrection hope. It's a conviction. There is resurrection hope. You can take up your cross and die because there is resurrection to come. And the Corinthians the resurrection of the believers at Corinth was worth Paul's dying. The resurrection of believers, those who had come to faith in Christ, was worth Paul's dying to himself, risking his life every day. It was worth it. He was willing to die to himself for it. He was convinced of it. So let me ask you, what is, what is worth your dying? What truth are you so convinced of that you are willing to die to yourself every day for it? As we read through chapter 15, throughout the rest of Scripture, is there anything more worthy than the gospel? Is there anything more important, any more important truth than Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to save sinners? Is there anything more glorious than the coming resurrection of the saints? What are you willing to die for? To die to yourself for? If you could give yourself to anything, what better cause would there be? Paul says, I die for it every day. This is his ministry. This is what he is about. This is his response to the resurrection hope. Continuing verse 32, Paul says he fought with beasts at Ephesus. What does this mean? Well, two options. It could be literal or it could be figurative. Some believe Paul means that he was literally thrown into an arena to fight against animals. This would be similar to gladiators, but not quite the same. Uh, this might be, it would be a fighting to death against an animal, and then they'd throw you, give you another animal to fight against. That happened. But uh, it might be that for Paul. He fought wild beasts, but we don't see that recorded anywhere else in Scripture. So it's not likely, right? We don't see it in Acts. We don't see it in any of his writings. So it's not likely. It's more likely a figurative statement characterizing those in the city of Ephesus who were violent men, 
men who were vehemently opposed to the gospel. Right? Paul would have fought against them, not in a physical battle, but in a spiritual battle, fighting for truth, fighting for the truth of who Jesus is, fighting for the truth of the gospel that saves. So Paul here asks, what would be the human reasoning, what would be the worldly reasoning for him to do this? Right? He wouldn't do it if there was just worldly, humanly reward. Right? Why would I do it, humanly speaking? Right? There'd be no reason for it. Why suffer in this way? Why engage in the fight if there is no resurrection? And so here again, Paul's giving further evidence of his ministry showing that there is resurrection to come. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12 real quick, if you would. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to look at Jesus and part of his motivation. Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 2, uh, we see that we are to run the race that is set before us with endurance. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus died because of resurrection hope, Right? He died because of the joy that was set before him, the joy of resurrection to come. He died for that future joy, right? So let me ask you, do you see the joy of resurrection? Is that set before you? Do you see the joy set before you of resurrection hope to come? If you do, will you then take up your cross daily? Will you subject yourself to death, if need be, for the sake of Christ. You find that kind of joy in the promises of God's word, right? Jesus knew what was coming. Paul knew what was coming. We know what is coming. So what is our response? Do we respond that way? God has given you promises in his word. He's told you about that resurrection to come in order that your joy might overflow. So there is great trouble in this life, right? Paul faced danger. He died every day. Jesus faced the, the wrath of God on the cross, right? When you face difficulties and you don't know what to do, when the darkness seems to close in around you, let the resurrection be your hope. Keep looking towards eternal life. If there is no resurrection, suffering and hardship for the sake of Christ and the gospel are useless. But Christ has been raised from the dead, and you are united together with him in faith. Next, we're going to note some differing philosophies. Look at the second part of verse 32 here. Paul writes, If the dead are not raised, then we have a quote Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So again, Paul is continuing this argument for resurrection, for our hope in the resurrection, for our living for the resurrection. 
If there is no resurrection, if death is the end, then you might as well live for the pleasures of today. Right? Carpe diem. Seize the day. Live for the here and now. That's all there is. Right? Pursue pleasure and avoid pain at all costs. That's the argument, right? And there were likely some in Corinth who were teaching this or living this way. And it makes sense apart from resurrection, doesn't it? If there's nothing more to come, if this is all there is, then you might as well do what you can to enjoy it. Live for yourself. Get what you can. Do what feels good. If the dead are not raised. Turn over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we see this played out in a parable that Jesus told. This philosophy, if you will. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 16. And he, Jesus, told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Isn't this the philosophy of our day? Aren't there many who live this way? Work hard, gain security, and then enjoy yourself. Do what you want. What a difference in philosophy. What a difference in perspective and approach. Live for today, get what you can, versus live for the resurrection, live for the eternal, right? Live for ease and comfort today versus live with a view of eternity and what is to come. So how about for you? Which philosophy do you lean toward? How do you live your life? Do you live for yourself and your own desires? Or do you lay down your life for the glory of God because you know what's to come? You know that there is an eternal heavenly reward. You must live with a view of resurrection, with a view of eternity. Jesus saved you for something much, much greater than the pleasures of this life. If there is no resurrection... Eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. But Christ has been raised from the dead. There is resurrection. So Paul ends these verses here with some exhortations. And so there's three exhortations here that we want to look at. The first exhortation is do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Do not be deceived by bad company. Bad company giving you false teaching and false 
philosophies. Right? This is a quote here. You can see it in quotes, Bad Company Corrupts Good Morals. It's a quote from a pagan poet. But Paul puts it forth as a true statement here, right? This is true. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company, bad associations corrupts all of you. It corrupts you through and through your whole life. And so in this context, it would include these false teachers that were arising in Corinth, those who would teach that there is no resurrection. It would include those who would teach, eat and drink, for tomorrow die, nothing else. Right? This is the bad company. Right? Bad company, false teachers, those who would teach false doctrine are an incredible threat to the church. They have no true knowledge of God, as we see in verse 34. So what are we to do with them? Don't associate with them. Stay away. Keep clear. Right? Now you might think, to yourself, I'm strong. I can handle it. I won't let that influence me. You're foolish. That's wrong. Do not be deceived. You don't know yourself as well as you think you do. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So let me ask you, what company are you keeping? Who do you spend time with? Who are you choosing to be your close friends? Along the same lines, what voices are you listening to? What preachers are you listening to outside of Pine Grove? What news outlets are you watching or reading? What social media accounts are you giving your time to? Jesus is a good one to listen to. Thank you. Young people, those of you in your teens and early 20s, this is vital for you. This helps set the direction for your life. These things really matter. You will be influenced by the people and the voices around you. So what company are you keeping? And how might that company be deceiving you? Are there changes you need to make? Do you need to hang out with different, a different people group? Do you need to break off a dating relationship? Do you need to change jobs? Do you need to turn off the TV? Do you need to close out your social media account? What changes do you personally need to make in your life? And do you have the courage to actually do it? Do you have the courage to do it? Another way to look at it, another way to ask from a different standpoint is how is the company you're keeping helping you fill your mind with the truth of God's word? How do you get more truth, more of Christ planted into your mind? This is not worldly thinking, right? It's spiritual thinking with resurrection mindset. It's what we sometimes call an eternal perspective, having the perspective of eternity, what is to come. This is in sharp contrast to eat and drink for tomorrow you die. Do not be deceived. 
Make wise choices in your life. Second exhortation here is sober up. Sober up. Look at verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. So the words in the original language here is not the the wake up, which is implication, but it's sober up. Sober up. Return from drunkenness. Where is that drunkenness? It's in the mind. Right? The drunken stupor is a mind corrupted by lies. Paul says return to sober-mindedness. Return to clear thinking. So how about for you? What things corrupt your mind? What activities dull your mind from clear, sober-minded thinking? Video games? Social media? Television? Inappropriate movies and music? These things, when not used rightly, dull the mind. You have to be careful with them. How about more severe things like pornography or drugs or excessive alcohol? Your mind is the spiritual battlefield. That's where the spiritual battle takes place. Wake up. Fight for truth in your mind. You need God's word and the company, the good company of others. Don't let your mind be drawn away and corrupted. Direct your mind towards what is good and true and right and holy. Paul says here, do it as is right. Do it righteously. Do it as you ought. This is the right thing to do. Sober up your mind. Fill it with truth. Return to sound teaching. Be sober-minded. Third exhortation here, stop sinning. Stop sinning. Paul says, do not go on sinning. Now, you need good theology that is rightly put into practice in order to help you cease from your sin. And so, as we consider the Corinthians, how were they sinning? Well, they were sinning by listening to bad theology. They were sinning by allowing the false teaching to come into the church. Right? Some were teaching, some were living as if there was no resurrection to come. Right? So don't take sin lightly. Right? You, in your life, don't take sin lightly. Be harsh against your own sin. Do everything you can to put an end to it. Every little thing. Don't justify little sin in your mind. It matters in your life. Put an end to it. Do everything you can. This involves mind and action, right? They're connected. Our mind or actions are connected. And so Paul here calls the Corinthians to repentance, right? We see this call throughout the entire Bible, right? Since, since sin entered the world, there's been a call by God to repentance. The life of a believer is a life of repentance. Repentance is a renouncing and forsaking of every sin, of every evil way. It's turning from sin and turning towards Christ. It's a life lived in faithful obedience to God's word in every way. The sure hope of 
resurrection to come will lead to a life of repentance. Live and act as those who believe in resurrection. Put an end to your sin. And then Paul says here, the second part of verse 34, he says, For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. It is shameful to call yourself a Christian and have no real knowledge of God. God has given you his word to read and to study. He's given you a church for you to hear the preaching of God's word every Sunday morning and many other opportunities throughout the week. He's giving you elders and pastors for good, godly counsel in your life. Kids, he's given you godly parents to teach you truth that you might know him. If you have no knowledge of God, it's your own fault, right? It's due to your own choices. It's your own laziness. Now, if you are a new believer in Jesus Christ, you're just new to church, you're new to faith in Christ, understand that this is a process, okay? I'm not condemning you or criticizing you for how much you know or don't know. Please understand that. But if you claim to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you need to know God truthfully. We find that in his word, who God truly is. Those who know God know that he is faithful and that he will not abandon his children. They know that the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 18 is true, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's resurrection hope. They know that there is a resurrection to come, and they live out their lives accordingly. Knowledge of God. So stop sinning. Grow in a knowledge of God. Let me make just a few really quick points of application here as we close. Number one, don't get tired of the gospel. Don't get tired of the gospel. Don't get tired of hearing about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save sinners. This is your life. Don't get tired of it. Don't dull your mind to it. Second thing, keep an eternal view. Keep your mind set on eternity, on what is to come after this present life that we can see with our eyes. Keep a mind set on eternity. Cherish the promise that we will share in Christ's glory. We'll be with him fully one day. And lastly, third, live your life fully for Jesus Christ. Embrace the hope of resurrection as your source of power with which you can endure hardship, endure the dangers of this world, and with which you can fight sin and put it off. Live your life fully for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we worship you. We thank you that Christ not only died to forgive us of our sin, to free us from sin, but that he was raised to new life. And that as we, through faith, are united with Christ, we are now dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We thank you that when this present life ends, that there is an eternity that awaits. 
and that one day Christ will return and there will be a resurrection of all saints, of all believers, that we will be raised with Christ to everlasting life. Let us not be dull to this. Let us not be bored with it, but let us preach this gospel to ourselves every day that we might be full of faith and living for you and for your honor and glory always. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.